This month we talked all about advocating the happiness for others and working on behalf of other people. I think no, nothing does that better in this world right now than not-for-profits. I think you have more applied ways of doing that, and we're going to do that next week and talk to a mental health professional. But in terms of working for large groups of people to help better their lives, I think not-for-profits do that the best. And this week, really excited, have a friend, Ryan Drysdale. He's worked in the nonprofit space for a really long time and is currently working not for one, but two different not-for-profits. And we have a really great conversation and discussion about what does working for a not-for-profit actually mean and how does a not-for-profit function as well as how does someone generate their own happiness out of working for a not-for-profit. It's hard to look at advocacy and activism and not conflate the two. Even I do that myself on this episode. So I, I don't really want to keep going too much longer to, to intro it because I think it's a great conversation. But when you think about how our world is impacted and you see a group of people or you see an initiative that helps people get happy, remember that a lot of times that comes from a not-for-profit. And I hope that this conversation helps illustrate a little bit more about what that exactly means. So continuing this month's theme of talking about people that enable happiness or enable maybe a better life in other people, really excited to be joined by one of my personal friends, Ryan Drysdale. He's a nonprofit professional working in Washington, D.C., but has been literally everywhere. I don't think I even know every every country or city or state that Ryan has been in. But Ryan, thanks so much for taking time this week to talk to us. Well, thanks for having me. Looking forward to this conversation. So in the nonprofit world and the world of working on behalf of other people, it can be a complicated topic of trying to find something of meaning in your life by also impacting the meaning of others or the, I mean, not the meaning of other people's lives, but impacting other people's lives to help them maybe find meaning potentially. How do you find yourself in the nonprofit space, what does it sort of mean? What is working in a nonprofit? What does being a nonprofit professional mean to you? What it means to me to work in a nonprofit is, from my experience, really trying to pursue missions and to change programs and communities for that's not being addressed through the private sector or through the government. Uh, I really wish that a lot of nonprofits didn't have to exist. And the fact that I think a lot of them do exist is because there is a sense of market failure or a failure of our government to address some of these needs. So that's why people like me uh, make a professional career out of working for different nonprofits. At the end of every day or every week, when you sort of take stock in yourself, how does the work that you do at a nonprofit add to your own happiness? Like, do you think that you would be happy doing something that didn't work on behalf of other people? Or are you doing work that you like doing and it makes it even better that you know that you're trying to make the world a better place? Yeah, there definitely is somewhat a selfish uh, reason for this because I feel good and I feel happy when I feel like I'm doing work that um, helps benefit the greater good in a community. And there have been times I thought, you know, I could go make a 
lot more money if I went and worked for certain private companies. And even the thought of that almost tightens my stomach. And I know I just don't think I would be as satisfied or fulfilled. You know, after a while, the dopamine rush of seeing that check come into the bank account would wear off. And I think I would be questioning what I'm doing. And so there is uh, kind of my personal pursuit of happiness is comes from the work that I do. And I think I've seen an evolution of that in the last few years where I've worked for more grassroots organizing direct nonprofits that are, you know, really high peaks and really low valleys and constant change and lots of grind and lots of potential for burnout. And now I work more in you know, institutional culture change with long-term goals. And I think that's really helped me find some balance so I can leave at the end of the day and know the work's not done, but know that the whole uh, universe isn't going to collapse because I'm not doing something. It's interesting. I guess when you think about nonprofit, you think about, well, you as a broad term, I'll say for me, when you think of nonprofit, you think of groups like Feed the Children, Doctors Without Borders, you know, where it's like, oh, I went, or I guess the Peace Corps is not a, a nonprofit, but groups similar to that, where you're like boots on the ground, actively treating people or feeding people or helping to build infrastructure and things like that. But there is so much more to working the nonprofit landscape that isn't doing the active work, but making sure that the organizations themselves can function and make sure that work is still enabled. Is that a hard push and pull for you that, uh, you know, I went to one of your your benefactor events. It was amazing. Got to talk to some really cool people, but it's got to be kind of weird where you're like, I'm not, this is, I'm talking to you who are totally fine to try to help you make other people's lives different. Is that hard? Is that a hard conversation that you find to have with people to make people understand why your organization is important? Yeah, I, I hate asking people for money and I've, I'm glad you used the phrase money because that was what I was getting at, but didn't want to yeah. put it so nail on the head. Yeah. And I have, I guess, avoided positions in my roles where I've had to do that a lot. Uh, I am of the mindset of I want to do the work really well and let the work speak for itself. Uh, and I wish that was always the case. You need someone to go speak on behalf of the work and speak to the people and uh, sometimes you have to throw really fancy events and wine and dine them. And I have questions about how that works, but at the end of the day, in the short term, you need to get that money. Uh, I think I've gotten more comfortable with my ability to analyze the organizations I'm involved in and feel good about the work they do. It makes it easier to ask. Like if you believe in the mission and what you're achieving and your outcomes uh, and you it's easier to ask. So I think, yeah, this last event that we were at, that came off really easily for me as opposed to other times. Uh, and I think that's a skill that, that needs to be learned because I know folks in the nonprofit world who can work a room and raise, you know, so much money to do really good. And I've worked uh, with organizations that for whatever reason haven't had that ability. And uh, it's a skill set that's desperately needed. And I think to a point you might have been getting at is there's so many other skill sets. You know, a nonprofit can function a lot like a business or a government agency. You, know, you need someone who can do the accounting, the lawyers, a guy who does a lot of IT work for a nonprofit I work with on the side. 
you know, he said he does that work because he knows he can do it well and he doesn't want a nonprofit to be hamstrung and unable to do its full potential of programmatic work because they don't know how to start up their email and, and run Salesforce. And he can take an hour out of his time and really free us up to do the work that we're better at doing for a nonprofit than that. And I think that's something I've seen in the nonprofit space that might be different than others is really having to be uh, a master of all or a, a jack of all trades and maybe a master of none. I think that's the phrase of really having to learn how to do a lot of things average and maybe not being able to really hone into your really good skill set. Uh, and I, I've seen that be a struggle. So when you get more money, people can really hone in on their skill sets. When you look at a, a not-for-profit from a 30,000-foot view, when, and there are good, in my opinion, and I think others that have read related to it, right? There's a reason why there's a not-for-profit rater and charity rater and stuff like that. There are better not-for-profits than others. Some are seem to be acting as quasi-not-for-profit, whereas others really truly are make no profit, all the money is put back into the mission. When you look at it from a 30,000-foot view, how do you how do you know, and maybe you're still learning this, but when is it time for a not-to-profit to realize that it's not doing as much good as it could, or it's no longer doing good at all, and it needs to either change or cease? Like, How do you know whether or not you're still accomplishing your mission? I wish more organizations did a yearly strategic meeting and asked themselves this question. I think you see a lot of mission creep and not that all mission creep is bad. If, if you're having to react to changing circumstances, that's good. Uh, but you see some mission creep that's bad or your organization's becoming irrelevant. Uh, I think for some of the paperwork you have to file to start a nonprofit, I've never done that myself. I think you have to really lay out what you're going to do with the nonprofit's assets when you close it down. So you really have to begin with the end in mind. And I think people should do that programmatically. You know, what is the issue we're trying to deal with? How, what is our plan to resolve that? So then we can no longer exist. And, and all of my work with nonprofits, there's only one I know of that I've kind of been personally connected with that's ever shut down for good reasons. And they had their outline, they were building schools in rural Thailand. And they were going to focus on a certain number of districts and they did their assessment. And I think they were around for 10 years. And when they built the last school, they shut down and people wanted them to shift their focus geographically and all of that. And they said, no, what we're going to do is write a book about our model and how we did it. And someone else can take that and, and run with it somewhere else. Uh, and I thought that was really admirable because that doesn't happen very often, uh, sometimes to the detriment of the communities and the people and the programs you're trying to serve. I have so many more questions on how a not-for-profit functions, but I do want to go sort of a little bit deeper and talk more applied on you. Uh, what you're doing more of the sort of management, it seems level work now or understanding, you know, how a not-for-profit enables the work that it's attempting to do, but you've done on the ground, not-for-profit advocacy although we're going to get to that word advocate shortly. Could you sort of explain what you've been involved in? I know uh, you've done work with Civic Nation. You've done a lot of sort of democratic engagement, which is a separate type of not-for-profit work. Um, would you be able to talk about your experiences a little bit? Yeah, I'd say my professional career has fallen into two buckets. And one bucket being grassroots community 
development work uh, with a focus of that in Southeast Asia, as well as with AmeriCorps. And then the second bucket, as you were mentioning, democratic engagement work uh, that I've been in for the last few years. And uh, really all of the work until my the current job that I have now has really been at that grassroots organizing level and where the programming goes from the ideas and the strategic plans and the budgets to being involved in the community and trying to enact that change and provide services and connect with communities and build coalitions and power. And so it's been interesting now really kind of coming over to the the other side of more longer term planning and, and not having my boots on the ground every day. So you talk about things like coalition building and and all these kind of things for the lay person that may not be familiar, what is, what does that like mean? Like, what is it, what were you doing on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I think in the, in the work I'm doing now with democratic engagement work with uh, colleges and universities is nonpartisan work of what can we do to make sure people are engaging in the political process more, uh, whether that's attending debates, learning about candidates, voting, how all of that looks as Uh, You might know, but maybe some of your listeners don't, in 2016 election, only 50% of college students voted. And in the 2014 midterm, only 20% of college students voted. And that's, you know, we can't have a healthy, strong democracy when we have low participation, especially when young people now make up the largest block of our population. We need to make sure they're participating at a much higher rate. So I preface with that to say there are lots of organizations and ideas and money really working towards the same goal, sometimes with different strategies. And there are some that really want to work together. And there's some that for whatever reasons don't want to work together. And I really seek collaboration first. I want to learn, you know, what are our strengths and weaknesses? Who's in the space? Who's already doing what? What relationships do people have? Kind of some power mapping, you know, strengths, weaknesses, Uh, analysis and see where can we come together. And I love having those conversations because I learned so much more about what's already happening, who's doing what, what are promising practices. But I really come from a place of where can we collaborate? Even if it's on a really small minuscule thing, I think when we are building relationships amongst each other and organizations and sharing resources and really learning from each other, that's when we're all going to work better than being in our own little silos, especially when we might overlap with other partners we work with or campuses we work on. So I think having that coalition building is extremely important because there are 20 million some students and institutes of higher education. Uh, And, you know, if we want to reach them all, we have to work together because there's no way that one organization is going to be able to reach all of them and reach all of them effectively. At, At least at this point, you know, the scale might change. But I can't think of any one organization that might be working on food insecurity or healthcare or whatever issue that's working on every single campus uh, across the nation. So you really, if you want to scale and have measurable impact, uh, you really have to work together. You know, it's hard to, you know, you can go faster uh, alone or you can go further together, I think it's an ancient proverb. And I think that really holds true and is a philosophy I hold in the work I do and the way I approach it talking applied on what you're doing so trying to get people to vote and thinking about our topic of trying to help enable people's happiness some people would look at what you do and say you will feel more engaged and more fulfilled in your own community and country 
and citizenship if you are actively engaged in shaping the way that those uh, important what's the word I'm looking for authorities function but some people may look at it and say well college campuses tend to skew liberal tend to skew left tend to skew democrat I don't I, the, your organization is actively working against what I believe in or my candidate but that doesn't seem like what your you know at any point when you and I have talked you've never said democrat democratic issues liberal socialist anything like that how how you know how do what happens when you face that resistance how do you does that sort of make you hurt on the inside a little bit like how does that how what do you do with that you know i think that resistance is definitely out there i see it more online than i've actually encountered it in person and that that's actually promising, I think, it goes to show that often what happens online might not necessarily be reflective of what's actually happening in society. But we truly, the work we do is nonpartisan. None of the, the organizations, the messaging we send out is about issues and ideology and what someone should believe. You know, we leave it to, the, to these campuses. They're teaching the critical thinking. And if you have confidence that they are teaching critical thinking well enough, folks are going to figure out on their own, who to vote for and what to vote for. Now, I know some people might have qualms with that and say that's not the case. But from our standpoint is, is if we cherish and love our democracy, we need to participate in it. And if trends of voter participation continue or go down, what does that look like? Uh, there are certain people who benefit when fewer people vote or people from different demographics when they vote at lower rates. Uh, but we just frankly want a healthier, stronger democracy that is more representative of what our country uh, looks like. So there are more ideas out there in the marketplace. And it's we have, you know, a, from a personal view, having a Congress that looks like the country, uh, having that really true sense of representation. And in this work, I've worked with uh, Democrats, moderates, uh, you know, socialists, libertarians, uh, Republicans. And I, especially folks that work in elections, so secretaries of states and people under their office, I work with people from both of the major parties and they're in it for the right reasons. And it's not political, whatever our own personal ideologies are, it's coming at it saying, what can we do to increase participation? Now, that's not true for absolutely everyone, but on the whole, majority of my experiences, almost all of my experiences have been, you know, what can we do to increase participation? Because uh, we're better for it. For you your, yourself, you've talked about, I mean, off show, off mic, I'd asked whether or not you would consider yourself an advocate. And I've already used the phrase once. And while, um, you know, I think advocacy, people think of applied topics, I would argue you're an advocate for democracy, or at least applied in the United States, an advocate for the Constitution. But you said you don't you don't identify with that term. Could you talk a little bit? I hate I keep using that phrase. You talk a little more. This is not what journalism school taught me. That is I've taught that it's a terrible question. Why don't you think you're an advocate? Why don't you identify with that word? I think I'm more comfortable with the term advocate than activist. That's I the term I meant. Not advocate. I'm an activist. Apologies. I, I think. You know, I think I really need to go look at the, the Webster dictionary definitions of them. But 
you know, in terms of activists, I'm thinking of people who are really on the forefront of organizing and, you know, raising our collective awareness and conscious of what our society is, has done, and, and what we hope to do. And, you know, I think there are probably few activists who self-identify as activists. The ones that call themselves activists have probably had other people call them activists so many times that it's like, okay, now I'm an activist. I could be wrong on that. In terms of an advocate, I do feel more comfortable for that because there are a lot of issues I advocate for. I'm advocating for fuller participation in our democracy and a strong democracy. Uh, and yeah, I think everyone can be an activate, uh, advocate. And I think everyone can be an activist and is, uh, but it's something that as a you know, straight white male uh, in these times, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be more towards the back of the room and try to shut up and listen a little bit more and, and where I can help elevate uh, in other voices and create other opportunities for other voices to be heard and taken seriously. And maybe in that sense, I can be an activist for people that look like me and are like me to take a step back. I'm trying to even formulate my follow-up question. I I guess I'm even trying to figure out the, the the difference between advocate and activist. It does seem so subtle, but it does seem like it, it when you talk about it, it is such a large gap in the way that you think about how you position yourself and the topics that you're working for. I mean, how do you know whether or not you're, you personally, Ryan Drysdale, believe in what you're working for or maybe you thought you were working for something and you believed in it and then it, it shifted like do you have an internal compass you check with often or how do you know that what you're doing is still in line with your own internal advocate activism barometer yeah that is something continually work on and check in with myself. And there's been times that I've been better at working on that and better at checking in with myself than others. And I think, you know, I did my undergrad in, in international relations. My first few years of professional work were in international relations. And I went and I got a master's degree in international relations with the plan to continue that path. And it was as I was finishing my last semester of grad school that I decided to turn down a government fellowship that would have really opened doors and paved the path for me to start working in the federal government in that space. And I just decided that wasn't the route for me. And it took a lot of reflection. And I think at the end of the day, I felt this alarm going off in my gut and in my chest that this doesn't feel right. Would I be happy doing this? Is this the space I want to be working in? You know, does it align with my values and will I be fulfilled by this work? And that wasn't the case then. So I made a pretty hard shift of finishing grad school in international relations and focusing on democratic, uh, domestic democratic engagement work. It was a pretty hard pivot, but I think it all made sense. It was all part of the journey and all part of my process of figuring out who I am, uh, who I want to be, and what my values are and how I live those values out there. And how do you not get yourself, you mentioned very early on burnout in this. I mean, it feels like as you're continually checking in on your own values, you're also caring for other people's and caring for other people, you know, not just their values, but caring for the people themselves. How do you not get burnout? I mean, how do you not get overloaded? And, you know, we've talked a lot about getting people to vote and you're saying that you've talked about how the number of people voting is going down. I mean, it's got to feel fruitless at times. Yeah, burnout is real. And 
I started feeling it in my in my last job, and I think some of it can come from structures of organizations of how they're structured with their employees of work and paid time off and all of those things to make sure that they can help provide some sense of balance and, and self-care in the workplace. And a lot of that come work and responsibility comes to yourself. And I think that's something I've had to fine tune in the last few years, you know, especially after this most recent election, there's been a lot of energy uh, and even before then, you know, during the Obama years, there was a lot of energy. Uh, in that case, it was on the right. In this case, it's more on the left uh, of marches and protests and events and your Twitter feed always blowing up. And I've had to realize I need strong self-care in place because uh, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. While some organizing and activism is a sprint and those folks you know, that's maybe why I don't consider myself an activist because they are doing it day in and day out and they're on the grind and they're on, they're dealing with a real burnout. And I had, you know, opportunities and privilege to not have to be on that grind. And it really, I think I can do the best for my organization. I can do the best for my community and I, for our world when I take care of myself and I feel the best when I wake up in a, in a morning and I feel well rested and energetic, uh, well fed, then I'm going to show up and I'm going to do the best job that I can and bring my best self for that day. And there's absolutely privilege in being able to focus on those things to do that. And that is how I focus on avoiding burnout so I can continue to contribute in this space. I cannot speak for everybody, but I will give you permission to be burnt out. I mean, I don't think the burnout isn't agnostic to what, uh, just because I've, I've experienced it myself and being like, well, I'm not doing blank. So I can't, you know, my burnout's not real. You're everyone's burnout is real. So I'll not a licensed medical professional, but uh, you know, I, sometimes you just need that, need that, per, that permission. I mean, it's gotta be hard. I mean, especially you even said that, you know, you know, that you could go and make more money elsewhere, but having that internal drive to want to do what's right certainly keeps that going. I mean, what advice would you have for someone that wants to go into not-for-profit or, or how would you even, you know, for someone that says they want to get involved, how would they even attempt to go and do that? Yeah, I think it's finding out what your values are, and, and what your passions are. And I think that can, for a lot of people, be an activity you learn through through doing. I, When I was younger and brimming full of ideas and passion, and not to say I'm not now, uh, I wanted to be involved of curing HIV AIDS, uh, preventing catastrophic climate change, working on voting rights, creating more equitable economies, all of these things. And I realized I had to do it step by step. I can't do everything at once, uh, but you maybe can do everything at some point in your lifetime, whatever everything is. And I had, was, had so many opportunities and experiences in my 20s that collectively put together helped form the values and the beliefs and the passion that I have now and help me keep that flame of passion burning at a, a good level to keep me going every day. And some people can burn their flame brighter uh, and others a little bit lower. And I think 
not learning to not compare yourself to others. Because I have friends who I think work or sleep maybe three or four hours a day and get so much done and are going on all these amazing trips and doing all of these great things and all these events, you know, three, four nights a week. And if I tried to do that, I would be so grouchy, sick all the time that I wouldn't be good to my partner, to my coworkers, to my friends. I wouldn't get as much work done. And I had to realize that it's okay to observe that but know how you operate best. How, what do you need to do for yourself every single day that you can so that the next day you can show up as present and as energetic uh, as possible? And I think that's how I can show up happy is when I can reach those things. I, I really definitely feel like that's got to be an identified topic about making sure that you self-care and making sure that that the work that you're doing is one that you really, really truly believe in. I I, I feel like I have I feel like I always say the show, but I feel like this conversation is going for so long. But I know we are we are at time, right? And this has been such a great conversation. I think it is so important to understand that working on behalf of others is also the other the other half of finding your own inner happiness to help you be a happy, engaged person day to day. Ryan, I mean, going into for people listening to the next week, I think the easy answer, and that can be your answer if it if that is that what you want to be for, you know, something to do to make you happier is to serve other people. But do you have a recommendation on something that you do when you need time to recharge that it would be a good recommendation for for others to try out this week? Yeah. Getting outside, connecting with nature, broad sense of nature, because depending where you live, your your nature might be a, a tree at the end of the corner. Uh, but I think it was just this past week, some study came out uh, that spending two hours a week out in nature can significantly boost happiness, at least for people in this study. And so uh, just getting out and going for a walk around your block during the work day to sitting out at the park for an hour on the weekend, you know, whatever it is, get outside because there's so much beauty and nature and calm uh, and so much happiness uh, to be generated being outside. It's the time of the year to do it too. And Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time this week and really sort of giving us a, a glimpse into what the not-for-profit world is like. I'll drop down in the show notes, uh, some civic nation links, and then, uh, you know, links to some other not-for-profit, uh, work that you've been engaged in. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on. I really look forward to having you on again in the future. Thanks your host and me.